G'day, I'm Tom Switzer, and welcome to Between the Lines. Always great to have your company. Well, today on the program, later on, we'll be chatting with Ted Galen Carpenter from the Libertarian Cato Institute, and his argument is that democracy is not an export commodity. Stay with us for that. Well, 40 years ago, Margaret Thatcher led her Conservative Party to victory. Now, she's just coming into Downing Street now. Here comes the Prime Ministerial Rover, bearing now Mrs Thatcher as Prime Minister. A huge crowd and a huge cheer. Plainclothes police out of a car behind her. And Mrs Thatcher out onto the, onto the doorstep. How's Thatcher? or the Iron Lady, as she was later dubbed. And she set the scene for a wave of privatisation and deregulation across the Anglosphere. From the Keynesian mindset that delivered economic stagflation and the winter of discontent, the UK, as well as the US, Australia, New Zealand, we all moved to an era of sounder policy and more durable prosperity. Today, though, the cause for competitive markets and free enterprise appears quixotic. Polls show rising support for socialism, especially among millennials, in Australia, the US and Britain. There's widespread anxieties about wage stagnation, people being priced out of the housing market and the vast concentration of wealth. Now, with Britain's ruling Conservative Party in disarray and against the backdrop of a chaotic British exit from the EU, there's a real danger that Britain is lurching to the left. Suddenly, the prospect of a socialist Jeremy Corbyn in number 10, that's no longer remote. So what should today's conservatives, Thatcher's children, what should they do? Tim Montgomery is founder of Conservative Home and former editorial page editor of The Times. Tim, it's great to have you in Sydney. It's great to be here. Thank you, Tom. Take us back four decades to Thatcher's election victory. Well, I really was a Thatcher child. Um, I was uh, nine years old when she came to, to power. But you know, I remember my school being closed for two weeks because we'd run out of oil. You know, we were all had to be sent home to work at home, which uh, I remember my mum not being very pleased at. Yeah. Um, but that was just one of the illustrations of a decade where Britain was seen as the sick man of Europe. Uh, we had a period in the mid-1970s when people had to turn the lights off, really, at 10 o'clock at mm. night. Um, there wasn't enough fuel to get the country going. There was a three-day week. Uh, factories had to shutter for most of the week simply because of a massive crisis in energy where unions really were running this the country. This is Arthur Scarghill union thuggery, correct? Yeah, and in the motor industry, right across manufacturing. And what Mrs Thatcher most of all, I think, succeeded in doing was that she put the government back in charge of the country. There was a feeling that unions, a militant left-wing unions were really running the show. And Mrs Thatcher restored the idea that Britain was governable, let alone what direction Britain should go in, but the idea that someone was in charge. Yet you've argued that Thatcher today would not identify with many of those people who are known as Thatcherites. What do you mean by that? There is a view of Margaret Thatcher as this sort of great libertarian reformer who left all parts of UK economy and state untouched. Actually, there was quite a pragmatism 
to her. And I think some of her modern-day disciples have forgotten that. Britain's National Health Service, the the welfare state, um, the system of higher education, I could go on. She left a lot of that untouched. I think she realised that if you wanted to win the battles that really needed to be won, probably being taming of the trade unions, uh, fighting the Cold War, ensuring the survival of Western civilization mm-hmm. against communism, she knew that she had to focus on a few things. So this, this idea of the Iron Lady, this unbending woman, this libertarian reformer, was true in some respects, but also there was a pragmatism. Now, like many of Thatcher's children, uh, you are a conservative and supporter of free markets. Mm. I think you've uh, written that you've had a a treasured photograph of you and Thatcher on your wall when you were a child. Thanks for revealing that, Tom. (laughs) Other people had pop stars and film stars on their wall and I had Mrs Thatcher, yeah. (laughs) And yet you wrote not so long ago that you have found yourself agreeing with much of what Jeremy Corbyn and his socialist treasurer spokesman John McDonnell have said about economic insecurity, homelessness, big business, how so? Well, look, what I don't agree with is their recipe for putting it right. But, you know, we are 10, a little bit more now than 10 years after one of the biggest economic events of, of modern times. The crash that happened, the banks that were rescued um, when we had those failures on, on Wall Street and in the city of London. Uh, I think there's still a sense across electorates in the Western world that capitalism isn't working as it should. Mm. People don't think the next generation is going to be as wealthy as them, or certainly not wealthier. The housing market seems to have outpriced a lot of younger voters. Uh, The pay of chief executives in boardrooms seems to bear no connection with the underlying performance of of, of their businesses. And if... Conservatives, centre-right parties do not reform capitalism. I don't think we can be surprised if voters vote for people who will reform capitalism, but not reform capitalism in a way that works with the grain, but against the grain, and throws the baby out with the bathwater. Let's get your reaction to something that Kenneth Clark, these days known as the father of the UK House of Commons, this is what he told the BBC's Hard Talk recently. I assumed that 1990s, the great normality, Uh, The emerging economies were entering the system. We had a rules-based global order. In Britain, we had growth with low inflation. The economy was marching on. You thought capitalism worked for everybody, and it's not true. We finally got free markets for the social conscience to work. Uh, Well, you thought so, but clearly not. we, We neglected, we failed, and nobody knows how to do it now. How to include those people who are not going to be able to take leading roles whose living standards have stagnated or sometimes fallen subsequent time, those towns, those communities, those regions, such old industrial areas well, let, let which have been left behind. And, 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 That's where the protest is coming from. The Trump vote yes. is very, very similar to the protest votes we get here. That's Kenneth Clark, the veteran Tory minister. He's been in the Commons since the early 70s. That was on the BBC's Hard Talk. I'm talking with Tim Montgomery, a British writer who's a guest of the Centre for Independent Studies this week in Sydney. Following on from those remarks, Tim, Clark's onto something, isn't he? This, this backlash against capitalism helps explain the Trump vote, the Brexit vote, the rise of populism across the European continent. Absolutely. 
Brexit, for example, is a, is a cause I support. I support Brexit because I think Britain should be a self-governing nation. But driving that, just as some of those other electoral upsets you, you mentioned, was a sense that 10 years after the crash, the people that caused it, the bankers who um, made huge profits when the curve was upwards but weren't punished when the crisis hit, the politicians and the central bankers that presided over that crash are largely still in power. And I think um, when the crash first happened, I think there was a sense that, my goodness, is this a time when capitalism is in real trouble? But what voters did at that time was actually they voted for people like Barack Obama, David Cameron, uh, Kevin Rudd, who actually were more sort of managers. They held on to nurse for fear of something worse. They wanted the ship to be steadied. But actually, once the ship was steadied, they actually did want the super tanker to move in a different direction. They didn't want to go back to the days when the banks were too big to fail, when the CEOs could run their businesses and earn telephone number salaries without some connection to their underlying performance. And I think complacency has sort of set in amongst the friends of capitalism. We haven't acted upon the need for reform that those events in uh, 2007 and 2008 made absolutely clear was necessary. A Wall Street Journal had an editorial uh, earlier this week about uh, the last quarter growth of 3.2%, which is really quite impressive. And their argument is that tax cuts, deregulation, classic sort of free market principles are responsible for the American bull run. And that's absolutely helping lift wages, uh, something that hasn't happened for quite some time. So couldn't you then argue that the conventional free market policies, they actually still can work? Look, even though Britain has this Brexit blight at the moment because of the indecision of, of our parliament, Britain actually is growing faster than Germany, uh, France, Italy, Spain, really because of the Thatcherite inheritance. So, look, I'm not saying that what Mrs Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, John Howard did mm. is irrelevant, but it's to look at, is this sustainable? Is capitalism reaching enough people and i think there are plenty of injustices in capitalism wages may be rising but house prices are probably rising faster for example there are all sorts of uh, long-term dependencies on welfare where people just don't feel that there's hope around the corner and if we don't address those things as people who are friends of capitalism we risk people taking over who have a more revolutionary rather than evolutionary approach and, and what complicates things. matters too is the wave of technological change you know uh, artificial intelligence automation mm. robotics what happens to the losers of technological change and globalization tim I think ultimately you can't be a Luddite and say we're going to reject technology. You've got to embrace it. It's inevitable. Mm. If we don't embrace it in the West, other parts of the world most certainly will. We can't say that free trade overall is not a good thing. It's the reason why world hunger and world poverty is falling. I think it's a question of the pace at which we do these things. What I think we have learned is that the welfare and education systems of Western democracies haven't been nimble enough at helping workers move from the current industries in which they're employed to get the new skills and the new incentives to be ready for the new jobs. And so we may just need to take a slightly sort of more gradualist approach, particularly to globalisation, perhaps also to some technologies, so that people aren't left behind um, in these periods. My guest is the British writer Tim Montgomery, and we're talking about the 40th anniversary of Margaret Thatcher's election. In the mid-70s, Thatcher supported Britain's entry into the common market. So uh, we'll never know, of course, would she have supported Brexit? 
this is a great <laughs> debate in in Britain, and um, uh, of course, what you rightly said is that Brit- uh, she supported the entry of Britain into the European Economic Community. Mm-hmm. That's what it was then called. It's now called a European Union, mm-hmm. and, and in those two different expressions is really, I think, the answer to your question. The British people thought they were joining a common market, uh, but that ultimately Britain would still be in charge of immigration policy. They didn't think foreign courts would be overruling courts in London. And they didn't expect to be sending billions and billions of pounds net into Europe to pay for the privilege of belonging to this, this club. And so Margaret Thatcher famously at the end of her time Uh, in office said we haven't rolled back the frontiers of the state in britain to only see them being reimposed at a european level i think therefore um, while others would disagree i think she would have absolutely been a champion of brexit okay there's no question there's paralysis in westminster about this issue how do we end this paralysis i mean could a general election be the only way to to break the deadlock because we've got this deadline now that goes back to what october 31 which happens to be halloween Mm. how do we end this paralysis uh, tim well it is a mess at the moment um i think long term um the dysfunctionality that we see in britain is a short-term necessity or characteristic of a divorce process Mm. but we're divorcing something that ultimately i think is a much more dysfunctional institution than the current process we see in in britain the eu has 27 member states all on different political and economic cycles getting out of that ultimately will be good for the uk but how do we get out of our immediate problem i think it probably is going to be a general election will be necessary probably by the end of this year we have local elections this week and we have European parliamentary elections later this month. And, of course, Britain will be participating in those elections because they're still part of the European Union. Unbelievably. Polls suggest that with the way things are going, Nigel Farage's new party, this is the so-called Brexit party, together with his old one, UKIP, they will decimate conservative support. You don't have preferential voting. It's first past the post voting. Mm. So could Brexit end up meaning Jeremy Corbyn? Well, that, I think, is the real thing that a lot of Conservatives are now frightened at. But the Tory party is in more trouble than I can ever remember it being in. Even worse than after the Tony Blair landslide in 1997? Absolutely. Even worse. um, Because uh, the Tory party said absolutely clearly after the referendum result that they would implement the decision. And under Theresa May, who's been as bad a prime minister as the first female prime minister we had was a was a good one mm. um she's just been unable to do anything else brexit has absolutely dominated the last few years of parliamentary time and she hasn't been able to deliver it and the public and particularly the conservative voting public are furious and if brexit is reversed how will history view this moment i think it will be humbling for for britain if uh, the fifth sixth largest economy in the world a nation with so much um prestige in in my belief and so much um the renaissance that it enjoyed partly because of margaret thatcher if it cannot extricate itself from this european superstate i think not only we remain in the european union i think we will be a much diminished member of the european union as well i think calls for the uk to you know have influence in the eu will be much diminished and I don't think our voice will be taken seriously because we will have looked like a something of a incompetent nation in how we try to exit. Tim, always great to see you and uh, thanks for being in the studio today. 
My pleasure. Tom. Tim Montgomery, he's founder of Conservative Home and he's a former comment editor at The Times in London, as well as a senior advisor to Ian Duncan Smith, who was a former Tory leader. You're an RN. Well, is democracy an export commodity? Remember, after World War II, the United States was able to turn Japan and West Germany into viable liberal democratic states. Or is democracy a do-it-yourself enterprise requiring special circumstances and conditions, as Owen Harris pointed out in his Boyer lectures in 2003? You think about those US-led wars in the Middle East since September 11, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria. It's fair to say that democracy is in short supply in that part of the world, isn't it? Well, that scepticism about the use of American power to export democracy, that's the view of my next guest. Ted Galen Carpenter is Senior Fellow for Defence and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute in Washington. He's author of Gullible Superpower, US Support for Bogus Foreign Democratic Movements, and that's just been published by Cato Institute Press. Hi there, Ted. Hello, Tom. Now, your argument is that US leaders, especially Ronald Reagan in the 1980s, they've all too often preached the virtues of promoting freedom. They've often supported a lot of democratic movements across the world. But the revisionist historians, your critics, Ted, they might say that this is just a cloak for American pursuit of its own security and economic interests, even empire. How would you respond to that criticism? Well, it's certainly an understandable criticism because US policymakers over the decades have often portrayed dictatorial regimes as members of the free world. And they had to know that what they were saying really was not true. And it's certainly possible that the rhetorical support for foreign democratic movements uh, during and after the Cold War, that the American leaders felt that some of them were not really democratic. On the other hand, private comments, from many of those American officials, including Ronald Reagan, including George W. Bush, suggested that at some level they really believed the people they were supporting were, in fact, advocates of democracy and freedom. So it's a mixed record. I don't want to say that everybody was taken in by foreign activists, but at least some policymakers were. And you mentioned Bill Casey, the CIA director in the Reagan years. In his will, he left more than $100,000 to support freedom fighter movements around the world. I mean, that suggests something more than cynicism, doesn't it, Ted? Exactly. That's something that suggests a deeply held personal belief. And while they might have been tempted to exaggerate the democratic credentials of some of the clients that Washington was supporting, it seems unlikely that they were so cynical that they knew that these clients were thuggish, undemocratic individuals and movements, but decided to portray them as proponents of democracy. And what about the former Yugoslavia? Because this year marks the 20th anniversary of the Clinton-Blair intervention in Kosovo. In fact, I think it was April, May 1999. So yes, 20 years. Uh, wasn't that intervention a success, Ted? 
It was a success in the very uh, narrow sense that it terminated the fighting. This happened both in Bosnia in 1995 and Kosovo in 1999. And it achieved eventually independence for Kosovo. But Kosovo is run by a thuggish mafia-style regime with a little more than a uh, very thin democratic facade. In Bosnia, the situation may be even worse. That uh, so-called country, I call it a pretend country, is utterly dysfunctional politically and economically. It is an international ward with no end to that status in sight. We're talking now uh, almost a quarter century later in the case of Bosnia. What about Libya in 2011? Hillary Clinton famously said after that brutal thug Gaddafi was killed and, and dragged through the streets, she said, we came, we saw, he died. Wasn't that a success? Well, a lot of other Libyans have died since then. So no, it definitely was not a success. It was perhaps the most unnecessary military intervention the United States has launched uh, in the post-Cold War era even more so than the Balkan interventions and Iraq. Gaddafi is an obviously disreputable, disagreeable character. But what the United States and its NATO allies unleashed in Libya was utter chaos that still is not resolved. We are talking at, at this moment mm. about fighting going on in and around the capital of Tripoli. What we brought there was to create Libya as Somalia on the Mediterranean. Incredible violent chaos, multiple parties fighting it out, and innocent refugees desperately trying to get across the Mediterranean in small leaky boats, and many of them capsizing with thousands of people drowning in the process. Yeah, and I think in fairness to the Defense Secretary Bill Gates at the time, he argued that this idea of regime change in Libya was fraught with a danger of all sorts of unintended consequences. It sounds like your argument then is very similar to John Quincy Adams, the former president and secretary of state. This is what he said in 1821, Ted, quote, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. That was a wise strategy then. It is probably in a wiser strategy now. Adams also emphasized that if the United States ever enlisted under banners other than its own, even if they were supposedly the banners of freedom and independence, the U.S. would be caught up in every manner of quarrel, every manner of plot in the world by individuals and organizations that usurped the banners of freedom and independence and democracy. That's exactly what we have discovered over the past several decades. Most of the clients and candidates we support have turned out to be anything but advocates of freedom and democracy. They range from corrupt pursuers of crony capitalism, I guess that would be about the kindest term to use, <laughs> to psychotic thugs, to Islamic extremists. 
and that is not a very impressive track record. My guest is Ted Galen Carpenter, is author of Gullible Superpower, U.S. Support for Bogus Foreign Democratic Movements. That's just out by Cato Institute Press. It was recently reviewed sympathetically in the New York Times. Ted is also contributing editor to both The National Interest and the American Conservative magazines. Now, Ted, for decades, you've been affiliated with the Cato Institute. This is a leading libertarian or classical liberal think tank in Washington. You've spent much of that time criticising US foreign policy, especially the notion of uh, exporting democracy, but also American global leadership. Now, in the wake of 9-11, Americans adopted a hawkish, uh, interventionist world role, but it's fair to say that public opinion polls certainly in recent years have shown less support for an interventionist foreign policy. Um, with Trump's America First agenda in Washington, do you feel a sense of intellectual vindication? Uh, in perhaps the same way that George Kennan felt a little vindicated when uh, the Truman administration and Eisenhower administration adopted the doctrine of containment that he had outlined. But uh, that doctrine often took terribly perverted, distorted forms. And that's what's happened with the Trump administration. Trump talks a good game from time to time about avoiding regime change, wars, nation-building crusades, and so on, and uh, revamping, reconsidering America's alliance system. But if you take a look at his actions, they greatly resemble those of previous administrations, not cutting back on unwise commitments. And in fact, to an extent, at least in the Middle East, he seems to have adopted an even more hawkish strategy than his predecessors. That is not a good development. And frankly, it gives the doctrines of non-interventionism or realism and restraint a bad name. I think realists need to really be very cautious about any associations with Donald Trump or his administration. Well, is there a danger here that, I mean, although Trump clearly uh, defeated Hillary Clinton in part on this campaign to limit America's involvement in the world, in 2020, could he see the peace issue to a non-interventionist Democrat. I mean, many Democrats are also fed up with endless wars. Let's get your reaction to Senator Bernie Sanders here at, of all places, a Fox News town hall recently. You're looking at a guy who, once again, not only voted against the war in Iraq, I helped lead the opposition to the war in Iraq. And if you go back, go back to YouTube, and what I said then is that wars have unintended consequences. In the last month, uh, I led the effort along with Senator Mike Lee, who was a conservative from Utah. Mike and I led the effort in the Senate, and some really great people in a bipartisan way led it in the House. And what we said, let's get out of Saudi Arabia, let's develop a bipartisan approach so that we do not continue to be engaged in you know, wars like Afghanistan, which is, what, 18 years in that war. That was Senator Bernie Sanders at a Fox News town hall recently talking about a War Powers Act resolution that would have ended US involvement in Yemen. That's a five-year civil war. Now, this was in the context of Bernie Sanders' vow to stop America's endless wars. Ted Galen Carpenter. Some encouraging comments. Uh, there have been comments by some other Democrats who have seen, seemingly gained uh, an allergy to unnecessary wars. but. 
there are also very much hawkish elements within the Democratic leadership and within supporters of the Democratic Party. In fact, many Democrats have attacked uh, President Trump for trying to reach accommodation with North Korea's regime to reduce tensions on the Korean Peninsula. They criticized him for wanting to withdraw U.S. troops from Syria and Afghanistan. So the Democratic Party appears to be badly split on the issue of war and peace. So the Hawks might live to fight another day. Ted, great to have you on the program again. Thank you very much, Tom. Ted Galen Carpenter, he's author of Gullible Superpower, US Support for Bogus Foreign Democratic Movements. That's published by Cato Press. And we'll put a link on our website. Well, that's it for this week's show. Remember, if you'd like to hear the episode again or download our segments since 2014, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or you can listen via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can even subscribe so you never miss an episode. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in next week.